in a series called God at Work, going through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We have finished the book of Ezra, and we are beginning the book of Nehemiah. I said at the beginning of this that these two books are really divided into three sections. And so the first two sections are in Ezra, and the third section is all of Nehemiah. So the third section is quite a bit bigger. But I want to ask you this question. Do you want to see God at work in your life? Do you want to see God at work in our church? Do you want to see God at work in our world? I said I want to ask you a question, and I asked you three. But in many ways, I think they're all the same question. Because when God works, he works through us, his people. He works through us, his church, and he works through us into the world. Do we want to see God at work? And we've been studying through the book of Ezra and now in Nehemiah how God works. And today I want to specifically look at being prepared for God to work. How do we prepare ourselves, our minds, our lives, our attitudes, our thoughts? How do we prepare for God to be at work? A couple years ago, I gave the elders a gift Bill and Dan, a a plaque, and it said something to the effect of, we we can't direct the wind, but we can set the sails. And I think it's a good statement. You know, the sailors spend so much time learning how to set, trim, direct the sails, how to prepare the ship to sail. But at the end of the day, or at the beginning of a sail, there's nothing the sailors can do to move that boat with the sails. The wind has to blow. So they spend all of their effort preparing for the wind to blow and knowing what to do when it blows. And that's what I want to talk about today. How can we be prepared when the wind of God's work blows? How can we have our sets or our sails rather set, trimmed, and ready? So we've been talking about God at work, and we we talked about all the way in the Old Testament, God creates us, and then we go astray, we fall into sin, and God calls this man, Abraham, into a relationship with him. And he says, your people are going to be my people, and he calls the Israelites, and he develops this nation of Israel out of this man, Abraham. They find themselves eventually enslaved in Egypt. And God miraculously saves them, calls them out of Egypt, series of miraculous events, but he brings them into the desert. And there he brings Moses up on this mountain and there God meets with him and gives him his law. He says, look, this is what this relationship is going to look like. They get into the promised land. Things go okay for a while. God's people are unfaithful though. And God constantly warns them, come back to me, come back to me. You're walking away, you're worshiping other things. And if you don't come back, you're going to lose your home. I'm going to send you into exile among the nations. And that's exactly what happens. The northern kingdom gets captured by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And God's people, the Israelites, are taken into exile. And that's where we find ourselves as we start in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God's people have lived in exile, not in their home. They've lived in a foreign culture, a foreign land for a few hundred years. And so we pick up the story there and Ezra begins telling us the history of God's people returning. 
And there, this man named Zerubbabel brings a group back and they go back with the purpose of building the temple. That was section one of Ezra. And we looked at what they did and how God worked through them. Section two was Ezra himself leading a group back and his job was to preach and teach the law, the word of God, and to have people recommit themselves to God's word. And that was the second section that we looked at. And now the third section follows this leader, Nehemiah. And he has another mission. He's going to go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I mean, unless you're doing a home improvement job right now where you have a wall to build at home, you might think, well, this isn't immediately applicable to me. I'm not building any walls. But we see throughout the book of Nehemiah how God prepared Nehemiah, used Nehemiah, what Nehemiah believed to be true about God and and applied to his situation. So whether you're building a wall or not, however God chooses to work through you, we can be prepared for that work by some lessons we learn through what Nehemiah does. And the first thing that we're going to see as the book begins is that the book starts with a difficulty. Nehemiah is faced with a difficult situation. He learns something about his people back in Jerusalem. And he faces this difficulty with faith. Step one of of being prepared for God to work is when we encounter difficulty, we must face it with faith. God often works through difficulty. If you've spent any time at all reading God's word, you will see God's people over and over again facing difficulty. We, in our relationship with God, we, in our relationship in this world, we, in our relationships, we face difficulties. Will we face these difficulties with faith? Look at verses 1 through 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." The difficulty that he's facing is that he has received word from his brother that's traveled to where Nehemiah is in in Persia here. He's come from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem, and he bears news of the people back in Jerusalem. Things are not going well. We can learn a little bit of background here from Ezra chapter 4, and I'll just point this out quickly. You can look it up on your own time. But in Ezra chapter 4, if you remember, we looked at Ezra did a quick overview of a history of opposition toward God's people. And we talked about he went from the time of Zerubbabel all the way up through the time of Nehemiah, kind of hitting some times of opposition. And one of those, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, who is the same king that Nehemiah is dealing with here, he writes a letter to the enemies of God's people in Jerusalem. The enemies had contacted Artaxerxes saying, these Israelites, they're causing trouble. They're rebuilding their city. What are you going to do about it? If you don't stop this, bad things are going to happen. And Artaxerxes writes back and says, you're right. You need to stop them. And, and it even tells us then that the enemies used force to stop the Israelites. In chapter 4, verse 23, we learn they compelled them by force to stop. That's a very polite way of saying bad things happened. 
So there in Jerusalem, these enemies rose up and used force to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And I believe that's what is happening here. This letter is coming reporting what happened. They burned down the gates. They destroyed the parts of the wall that they had started to rebuild. Things are going very poorly. And Nehemiah hears this in verse 3. Look at his response in verse 4. He weeps, he mourns, and he fasts, praying for some days. Why? It's a good response to difficulty. He begins by mourning. He's sad for his people. He's sad for the situation they find themselves in. Sometimes we want to skip over this. Oh, don't worry, God's in control. But he mourns. This is a difficult situation. Friends, when someone's going through a difficult situation and you tell them to just get over it because God's in control, they shouldn't worry about it, that is not ultimately helpful. And it's not the picture we see in Scripture. Stop, pause, mourn. In fact, the New Testament says mourn with those who mourn. So while they're mourning, enter into the mourning with them. Sit there, put your arm around them, and just weep for a while. Mourn. It's an appropriate response. But we can't just stay there. It says, then he fasted and prayed. Here we begin to see him applying faith to the difficult situation. See, fasting and praying was an expression of dependence upon God. Fasting is saying, even more than food, I need God. I will take and set aside the time that I would normally eat, and I will use it to pray to my Lord, my God. And he does this for several days. He sees this difficult situation as an opportunity for God to work. And he faces it with faith. And you're going to see this applied throughout the chapter. But I want to stop here and just pause. How do you respond to difficulty? How do we respond to difficulty? Fear? Complaints? Trying hard to just do it on our own? Maybe just ignoring it? Well, it's hard. I just, I'm just going to look over here because that's just too hard. And I'm going to ignore it. We need to also face difficulty with faith. Apply faith to the difficult situations. And you're going to see how Nehemiah does this. So let's look at what this looks like. The first thing he's going to do is pray. But he's going to pray according to God's word. Pray according to God's word. He trusts in God. He knows who God is because of the history of God dealing with his people. And because Nehemiah, I believe, as evidence in his prayer, he has spent extensive time studying the word of God. There is so much in this prayer that he is quoting scriptures and applying them to his situation. So he's praying, yes, but he's praying according to the word of God. Watch how he applies what he knows about God In this prayer, look at verse five. He says, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And just stop there. This is the beginning, the opening of his prayer. He's addressing God and he's declaring some things to be true about God. This is a great place to start in prayer. We want to jump in. Lord, what are you doing? Do you see this mess? God, my, my life is falling apart and I don't know what to do. Stop and say, who is God that I am praying to? That puts perspective on the whole prayer. He says, Lord, the God of heaven. Here he is, his people, long way away, are suffering. He's in a foreign empire where he lives and, and is a servant 
And yet he is declaring that God is bigger than all of this. He is over and above all things. He goes on, you are the great and awesome God. He is powerful and mighty who keeps his covenant of love. Nehemiah knows God has made promises to his people. And he's claiming those promises. He's holding on to it and saying, God, you have made a covenant with us. And we know you keep that covenant. When God brought his people out of Egypt and he met with Moses on the mountain and he gave them the law, that was the covenant with Moses and the people. And it was a covenant that God would bless them and they would obey him. There are other covenants we can look at. He made a covenant to Abraham that was unconditional, that he claimed the Israelites as his people no matter what they did. But the Mosaic covenant comes in and it says, I want to bless you, but you have to obey. God would never give up on his people, but their experience of that relationship would change based on their obedience. And so he's claiming this covenant and applying it to the situation. If we want to be prepared for God to work in and through us, we need to know who he is. We need to know who God is based on his word, not our ideas, not our desires, but his word. Who has God claimed to be? And so Nehemiah is holding on to this and applying it to the situation. Part of the covenant, as I said, was God would be faithful and bless his people. But the second part of the covenant was that they would be faithful and obey him. And Nehemiah knows they have not done that. That's why they went into exile in the first place. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed these commands or the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He admits they have messed up. Friends, God already knows our hearts. He knows our deeds. It is helpful for our own heart to come to the Lord and say, God, I have not been faithful. It is helpful for us to recognize when we have sinned against him. We're not telling him anything he doesn't know. The other thing I find amazing here in Nehemiah, and we saw it with Ezra before him, Nehemiah, as far as we can tell, hasn't done anything wrong. Yet he identifies with his people. We have sinned against the Lord. Because he understands they're in it together. We have such an individualistic view of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it's good. You individually are saved by Jesus Christ. You individually have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's awesome and amazing. But it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. We become part of a group, part of a family, the family of the people of God. And so here, Nehemiah is confessing on behalf of all the people they have been unfaithful. What's interesting is that Nehemiah understands though the people have been unfaithful, God has never, never let go of the promises he gave to his people. And part of the promise is that if they would admit what they did was wrong and they would turn back to him and seek him, he would work. And Nehemiah knows this and he's applying it to the situation and praying. 
And look how he applies God's promises here, his covenant, to the current situation. Verses 8 and 9. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That's exactly what happened. They went into exile. So Nehemiah is saying, you fulfilled that part of your promise, God. Verse 9. But if you return to me, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He says, God, remember that. We sang that in the song. Remember your people. Remember your promise. Please understand when we say that about God, when God's word says it about God, God literally cannot forget anything. He cannot forget. Okay, so this isn't God has forgotten something and we have to remind him of it. When we ask God to remember something, it is to call to mind and apply it to the situation. We are saying, God, you made a promise and that promise applies to this situation. God already knows that. He hasn't forgotten it at all. But they're saying, God, you did this. We are now praying that you will do this other part of the promise. We are returning to you In verse 9, he trusts that God will also carry out the promise to return them to their homes. In fact, God has already started doing that. We saw that in the book of Ezra. This is why Nehemiah is confessing the sin, because it's an act of faith. He's trusting in the way that God has said that God will work. To be prepared for God's work, we need to know how God works, how he has worked in the past. Because God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we learn how he worked in Moses' day, Abraham's day, Ezra's day, Nehemiah's day, we are learning about how he is working today. And we can trust that and apply it to the situation. We must know how God works. And in faith, trust that he is still working now. Now look at verses 10 and 11. Because now Nehemiah is going to ask something of God. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. He asks God for something. That's why he's praying. Here's a need, God. I'm trusting you to meet this need for your people. But look at how he prays. It's according to God's word. Nehemiah is taking God's promises from the Exodus all the way back in the time of Moses. And he's applying it to his situation. Verse 10, your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your mighty hand. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And what are the people doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. They made themselves an idol. And they're saying, well, we don't know what happened to this guy Moses, but this golden calf is really what rescued us from Egypt. Let's worship that. And Moses prays. And listen to the prayer. It should sound very familiar. Sovereign lords, Deuteronomy 9.26, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Do you see the similar language? Nehemiah is saying, I remember a time that God's people completely screwed up 
and he even punished them, but he did not cast them away completely. He did not give up on them. He continued to fulfill his promises to them. God, you did it then. We are trusting you to do it now. And he applies that to their current situation. Nehemiah is not manipulating God here. He's not pleading with God just to get what he wants. He is remembering in prayer who God is and how God has worked in the past and applying it to his situation. At the end of the prayer then, he says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah knows he is in a unique position to go before the king and make a request. And that's what his people need. They need supplies to rebuild. They need officials to say that you're allowed to do this. And the man that he's about to go make this request of, remember who he is. He's the guy that told the enemies in the first place, stop those people from rebuilding. He's kind of asking the king to change his action and change his mind. That is a difficult thing. And we are told that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. And maybe you know a little bit about this, but just to be sure, we're on the same page. The cupbearer would literally bring the cup to the king. The cupbearer would often have to drink the the wine first before he gave it to the king. If the cupbearer died, it was probably poisoned. So that was part of his job. But that's it's actually much bigger than that. You see, the cupbearer, we have history or historical records, even from Persia, saying the cupbearer was often over the entire house. He was like the chief servant over all the other servants because not only would he taste the wine, he would know who prepared the food that he was bringing to the king and know that they were trustworthy. He would know who they bought the food from and know that they were trustworthy. He had to be the most trusted servant in the entirety of the palace because the king's life was in his hands. And if anybody was in a position to kill the king, it was the cupbearer. So he was in a position of high rank and importance. And he knew God had put him in that position for a purpose. That's why he's about to make this request. But he prays according to God's word. If we want to be prepared for God's work in our life and in our world through us, we must know who God is so we know we're praying in line with his character, his nature, and his actions. And then we have to apply this in faith in our prayers. This is not what's known as name and claim it, where we find something in the Bible, God healed so-and-so, I'm sick, therefore I claim that God will heal me. That's acting like God has to do what I'm asking because scripture said he did it for somebody else. That is not the way prayer works. James warns people, though, at times when we're planning something, we need to pray if it is the Lord's will, this will happen. That's how prayer works. God, I know you are a healer and I know you healed this person. I believe you can heal me. I'm asking for you to heal me, but I am trusting that you will do what you know is best. We do not manipulate God through prayer, but it is good to pray according to who we know God to be. The next step then after prayer is to plan and act with faith. I love this about Nehemiah. You see, we often think that faith and planning are opposites. Like, well, just let go and let God just show up and see what God does. Don't think about it. Don't think through it. Just show up in faith and God will use you. And does God do that? Absolutely. Praise God he does. 
There are times he absolutely works this way. But I'm going to suggest to you that is not what happens here because there is something very important in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 1 says this takes place in the month of Nisan. But chapter 1 verse 1 says Nehemiah hears about the trouble in the month of Kislev. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are three to four months that have gone by. What has Nehemiah been doing for those three or four months? He's been praying. He's been trusting. And I would suggest we can see from his actions before the king, he has been planning. He is going to come before the king with a very specific list of things he's going to ask for. I don't think he's making those things up on the spot. He has thought through this. Faith and planning often go hand in hand. We can apply our faith in planning for what God is doing just as much as in the moment that he's doing it. We need to always hold those, those plans with an open hand. But it is not unfaithful to make plans. Let's look at how Nehemiah does this. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Let me just read the whole thing for us. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, or asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel and by the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governor's of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah is going to go into the presence of the king. This is, at this time, the single most powerful person on the face of the earth. The king, not Nehemiah. To be sad in his presence, to do anything in the presence of the king that might offend him, make him unhappy, make him feel in a way he just doesn't want to feel that day, could be grounds to be put to death like that. They were not known for calm, rational thinking, especially Artaxerxes. This guy had a tendency to just kind of fly off and make rash judgments. And so Nehemiah goes before him and he's sad. And I don't know because we're not told, was he purposefully sad to raise the issue or was he simply sad because of the difficulty of the situation? I don't know. But I do know that he knew full well the consequences of that decision. Appearing sad in the presence of the king could have severe and dire consequences. 
And so the king asks what's going on, and Nehemiah tells him the promise, or the, the situation rather. And the king asks Nehemiah what he wants. I love this part because it's like, okay, I'm in. Like, he's not going to put me to death. We're having a conversation here. And then look at what Nehemiah does in verse 4. Remember in chapter 1, he prayed a long prayer with Scripture. Prayer doesn't always have to look like that. Here we have a quick prayer. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he said to King Artaxerxes, ah, That's a good question. Can you give me a moment? I need to go off to the side. Oh, Lord, my God, maker of heaven. I don't think he did that. The king says, Nehemiah, what do you need? I think Nehemiah went and then talked to him. Quick prayer in the moment. Friends, this is so helpful. It is good to have time of prayer set aside where you're pouring over scripture. That is essential. But in that moment when your phone rings, God, help me with this phone call. In that moment, you get that email, that text message that from that person you can't stand or that employer or employee. Just take a moment. God, help me with this. May I respond appropriately. In the moment of a tense conversation, pray briefly, quickly, Father, help me. It is good to express our faith along the way by praying because God is already involved. And it focuses us on the fact that he is involved and he is present with us. So Nehemiah asks to go to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. He asks for all the supplies that he needs and letters to the officials to make this happen. And verse 6 tells us a very unique little tidbit of information. Who's sitting next to the king? The queen. Now, we might go, well, of course. No, no, you don't understand. The queen was not important. She meant nothing. Legally, in that culture, she meant nothing. In fact, this actually tells us this was probably a personal, very private setting where the king was dining with the queen. This is not an official setting where people would come making requests of the king because historically, the queen would not have been present when that happened. She had no power and no authority. But I said many weeks ago, we have an inkling of who this queen might be. Who is she? She very well might be Esther. The book of Esther tells us about this Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia for such a time as this, it says, to save her people. This king that had made a rash decision that led to an outbreak of persecutions against the Jewish people, that outbreak of persecution had been stopped because of Esther. She married the king and she made a request on behalf of her people. As I read this, I thought, You know, I wanted to emphasize how Nehemiah was preparing for this moment. But what a bigger picture of how God had been preparing for this moment. For a long time, maneuvering Esther into that position, so she was sitting there right by Artaxerxes, she had already turned his mind and turned his heart, and now Nehemiah could make this request. Isn't our God amazing? Ezra acts or I'm sorry, Nehemiah rather, acts in faith here. There is a place for planning. There is a place to say, who is God and how does this apply to our situations? We need to understand there is also a place for showing up and seeing what God does. 
In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples, do not be afraid when they're brought before those in authority because the Holy Spirit will teach them or give them what to say. We can't use a lack of planning for a failure to show up because sometimes God works through a bunch of losers who, who haven't prepared. But we also need to understand that the Bible is filled with godly people who planned in faith. And that's what I see here with Nehemiah. He has planned based on who God is and how God works. He has planned trusting God to continue to work in that way. He has planned in a way that submits to however God wants to work. James 4.15 says that even as we plan, we must constantly remind ourselves, it is if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. All of this is done in faith. We see that in his prayer in verse 4. We see it at the end of chapter 1, verse 11. Give your servant success today by uh, granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah is not saying, if I do everything right, all of this is going to work out. He's saying, God, I'm depending on you. That's faith. Faith and planning are not at odds. But there's one more part of preparing for God to work. A part I wish wasn't true. A part I wish we were out of time and just couldn't talk about. But we need to talk about. Because in our preparing for God to work, we need to also expect opposition. We have to expect opposition. Look at verse 10 again. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Sanballat and and, uh, Tobiah are pagan officials in the land near Jerusalem. They were not Jewish people. And they are losing some of their authority because of this decision of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is being granted authority over the area. Sanballat and Tobiah will appear again and again throughout the book of Nehemiah. And they will constantly work to undermine what Nehemiah is doing. We have this picture sometimes that if we are faithful to God, like everything's going to fall in place and just be rosy and wonderful and happy. That is not the pattern in scripture. We should, as we step out in faith and follow the Lord, we should expect opposition. That does not mean that we're going in the wrong direction. It does not necessarily mean that God's closed the door. It means that we are being called to trust God, even in the face of opposition. When God works, we will often face opposition. We have to make a decision to continue to trust and to persevere. So I'll ask again, do you want to see God at work in and through your life? Face difficulties with faith. Train yourself in a moment of difficulty, big or small. Practice the habit of responding in faith. God, you are in charge. This is hard, but you are in charge. Pray according to the word of God. Study God's word so that in that moment you have truth from God's word to apply. And if you haven't done that, go to scripture or get together with fellow believers and say, hey, here's what I'm facing. Is there anything in the word of God that can teach me what God does in these situations? And then pray according to God's word then plan and act in faith. 
Don't just step out in what you want to see happen. Trust in who God is. Apply it to the situation. And if planning is necessary, do so with prayer and careful consideration. God, I am trusting you each and every step along the way. But don't just stop there. Act. Step out in faith. Nehemiah had to appear before the king. He had to ask for these things. And you're going to see that things don't get better and easier from here on out. In fact, they get harder and harder. But we must act in faith. And we must expect opposition. I have found it to be, in general, a fairly universal truth that when people seek to follow God and to have a greater faith in Him and trust in Him, often things in their life will get more difficult. Because we live in a wicked, sinful world. And it wants us to turn away from God. It's constantly trying to get us to to give up on our faith. We must expect opposition. There is more going on than what we see. And there are a lot of people in this world that don't want to believe what we believe and don't want us to live out our faith. That doesn't mean we should hate them or be mean to them, but we should expect the opposition and not allow it to rattle our faith. The more we know about God, I believe the more we will be aware of ways he is always at work around us. The wind of God's work is always blowing. We need to be prepared and set the sails of our life, of our church, of everything that we do, so that when God works, we are right there to join Him in it and trust Him to work in and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so easily caught up in our own things. We are so easily overwhelmed by situations in our lives. And and God, admittedly, sometimes those situations are absolutely overwhelming to us. But they are never overwhelming to you. Your word, through your grace and mercy, has revealed that you are more powerful than any difficult, fearful situation that we might face. And so I pray, Father, may we be people that know your word so that we can face these difficulties with faith, so that we could pray according to your word and apply your truth and your character and your nature to the situations of our life. That we could then make plans and and step out and act in faith, applying your word to our situations and living in obedience. And Father, as we face opposition, as we know we will, may we not give up. May we continue to do what, what started us in the first place. May we act in faith to you and keep on trusting that you are in control, that you love us, that you have a plan that is at work. Because just as Nehemiah applied your truth then to his situation, so we must apply it today. We are your people. We have been saved by your son, Jesus Christ. You have made promises to us that if you would save us, you would also change us, sanctify us, renew us, and one day call us home to be with you forever and ever. And Father, if you have fulfilled a portion of that promise, you will fulfill all of it. May we live in the faith in your word. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.